0: Stigma, I think, is just, uh, just discrimination. It's, tr- it's treating people as less than because they're going through certain problems.
1: Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. This week, we have Brian Valasek, counselor and clinical director at Restoring Hope Counseling and Coaching right here in Cincinnati. Brian, thanks for being with us. Great to be here, man. What piqued your interest in clinical counseling?
0: Well, that story would go back pretty uh, pretty good ways, but uh, in clinical counseling, I've always been interested in psychology since I took my first abnormal psychology class, the uh Sort of the the abnormal parts of our human behavior, sort of people getting outside of the the ordinary. Uh, I've always gravitated towards that. Um, but uh, you know, I I went to um, to undergrad, and I got my undergrad in psychology at University of Illinois at Chicago, and uh, went on for my master's. So, no Sabre. family
1: history or certain moment in time that like jazzed you up to not necessarily
0: yeah yeah that's a good question because most people get into the field of addiction recovery with either a personal history or a family history um i have a family history but it's kind of uh mild uh my my grandfather was an alcoholic um but the percentage of people in the family with personal drug problems or alcohol problems is kind of limited um my, I had my own dalliances with, with drugs, um, which is um, – it informs some of what I do. So I didn't tell you about the, my time at Miami. <laughs> so I um, smoked a lot of weed at Miami. And um, kind of, so this is why when I talk with people about marijuana, it's like, no, it really can do more harm than you're actually saying it can. Right. But uh, so that, that kind of is one of the things that put me on the path here uh, with my understanding
1: we met a couple years ago at a industry luncheon, yeah. and you know instantly we hit it off. But I just, you're extremely passionate about what you do. You have a strong conviction for this. Uh, so, what drives this relentless enthusiasm? I have a um, a heart for the outcast.
0: It started with. Um, it started with folks with mental illness. So my first job out of uh, undergrad was as a case manager in a psychiatric rehab in Evanston, Illinois. So there I saw extreme borderline personality disorder, severe psychosis, schizophrenia, and just people that have been forgotten by society. Um, so only only when I st- Took my internship at the Alcoholism Council, which is now the Addiction Services Council in Cincinnati. Um, did I realize that that um, my heart is actually for addiction people in addiction as well? Um, just the, the the struggles and the work that has to be done day in day out to to make that kind of progress and kind of flip the life and the lifestyle 180 degrees. It's remarkable. It is inspiring, and. But I, And I don't think I noticed it right then, the correlation between the two. But it's the same thing. It's the outcast. It's the person who's been overlooked by society. Right. So I resonate with that. And that's why, why I think I'm here,
1: right. even today. A lot of people think that addiction and mental health are completely independent of each other. Give me your take on that.
0: That is largely untrue. Thank, I mean, it can be you. true, but it's uh, I'd put it the estimates, my estimates is about that's true, only about thirty percent of the time max. They usually go hand in hand. Um, usually someone who has who isn't in, in an addiction has had some sort of tra- trauma or chaotic upbringing. Um, certainly has, uh, not certainly, but oftentimes has anxiety or depression, that they would be self-medicating that for, trying to escape that or numb that out, the pain of something. It could have been loss or grief, uh, all kinds of different things. But so usually that's what you'd see. Um, and folks who just have a straight addiction sort of if you do drugs long enough, you're going to have depression and anxiety and things like that uh, while you're actively using and because you're not actively using. In other words, withdrawal and things like that. And, yeah. and that, whole, that whole roller coaster of life and, and uh, scrounging around trying to make it happen for yourself, doing drugs like it's your job kind of thing. You see it where they, it works both ways. So usually I put it about 70% of someone with a mental health issue has an addiction issue.
1: Which is the definition of dual diagnosis.
0: You'll often hear that called dual diagnosis. Sometimes that will be uh, used for someone with mental health issues and intellectual disorders, disabilities. Um, But most often you'll hear that with mental health and addiction, which I don't like to separate the two. I mean, technically... Uh, an addiction is a mental health disorder. It's in the DSM-5 as such. Right. But we don't know. We often kind of separate in silos, silo that, which is a big problem in my opinion.
1: Right. We're obviously in the middle of a drug crisis. hmm Being in counseling, give me your take on the current climate.
0: I th- I think a couple things. First thing I think is that there is help out here. There's tons of help available. I just think that counselors... And therapists and, and, and practitioners that that can help aren't great at advertising, so we're all out here and we're all essentially entry points, but nobody really knows about us. So um, there is enough people out here to help the people who are going through the crisis. You know, the crisis
1: for you personally and for restoring hope. Have you had to refocus? Do you feel that you're Percentages have shifted, with people really needing a focus on substance use disorder.
0: It's it's hard to say. Um, about thirty percent of our clients probably have uh, addiction issues. Um, maybe fifty percent have you know a substance abuse. Now we don't use that language anymore, which I miss it. Um, now we call it substance use disorders, and we lump everything together, but. Um, so about half of our people have a substance use disorder and probably 30% have uh, addiction. So
1: um, I don't know if it's changed much of what we do. I love what you just said. 30% have addiction? Uh-huh. Okay. I thought, I'm trying to use substance use disorder because the DSM know. is saying that you know addiction is a word that is you know, patronizing or not positive, but I've always thought, that the word addiction is thrown around way too much because people don't smoke marijuana or do a line of cocaine
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then they're addicted. You know, there's dependence, you know, when you're, you're you have a injury and you're you're taking pain medication then you start taking maybe two instead of one, you know, there's a progression.
0: Mm-hmm. Substance use disorder in, is intended to encapsulate anything from abuse To addiction. Now, so they have you have mild, moderate, or severe substance use disorder. Mild would be the equivalent of substance abuse, the old substance abuse from the DSM-IV, where you may it's maybe caused you a couple problems, maybe you've gotten a couple DUIs or a couple arguments or a couple of unwanted consequences, and you keep using. It's think scale here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Addiction is, would be the equivalent of the substance use disorder, severe. And that would be essentially addiction would be giving over your life to something else, right? I mean, that's the, the root, the root uh, word isn't uh, from a Latin word, meaning to give over, to be in bondage. So that's, that would be severe. Um, moderate, I'm not sure what that's supposed to mean exactly. Um, it, it could kind of mean S- severe abuse or mild addiction <laughs> but so i don't like the term the terminology i do like the fact because you would do something very different in treatment with someone who's abusing substances versus someone who's addicted to substances right foremost among them is you might have a you might have to take an all-or-none approach with somebody who's addicted right the other per- the other person could um Perhaps curtail their use, right. but by definition, somebody who's an addiction cannot curtail curtail their use. They try it and try it as they might, but you just can't do
1: it. Right. You know, once you pop, you can't stop. Right kind of situation. The old school terms addiction. So, kind of that gray area is dependence. Mm-hmm. You become physically dependent, mm-hmm. mentally dependent. You know, the majority of people that get into opiates, I, I say the majority. I, I would, I don't have the facts in front of me, but have an injury. You know, they have some sort of injury or something that requires them to take pain medication. Mm -hmm. And then if they've got the gene is going to start taking two because it it numbs the pain and then it just snowballs from there, that turns in potentially to addiction. I'm
0: glad you brought up dependence and I'm glad you brought up um, dependence on opioids. If anyone took opioids for long enough, they would become dependent Me, you, and anybody else, whether you have a genetic predisposition or not, you'd become dependent. Really? That doesn't mean you're addicted. Addiction is dependence plus a lifestyle change. Right. Some people could drop it. Oh, here's your your 30-day supply. Take your 30 days or don't take it and you're done. Which happens a lot. It does, and a lot of people are able to do that. Right. I call them Camp A or Camp B. I forget which camp. Um, camp B for non-addict, Camp A for addict. Right. But and but some people will um, just want more. You know, there's the camp. The Camp B is a person who can be like, "Oh, that was good. That, oh, that was nice. I might do that again sometime." The, right. Uh, and then the Camp A is that was good. When can I do that again? <laughs> can I do it now? Right. Uh, so my hands, so, my hands right. up. In yeah, the I hear you. I hear. You. So, de- so dependence is an, a, f- a necessary aspect of addiction. If you if you have dependence, you are either dependent or an addict. And I just explained what the difference is and what it would take. It Would be a complete lifestyle change. But if you've been dependent before, you're out of the
1: substance abuse category. You're either an a- you're either an addict or you're not. Let's talk about. Now, you're a counselor. Yes. We just had this conversation yeah. at lunch. Then the word therapist is thrown around, and then there's psychologist, psychiatrist. Yeah. Break down just for education purposes. Sure. What, you know, kind of go, go through that totem pole. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well,
0: counselor's on the lowest. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's a really good question because th- we get this a lot. I get this when, uh, for intake calls and things like that people want to know, and there's a lot of... Uh, you, if you watch TV, it's all, everything, everything about the way it's depicted is usually wrong. Um, so the word therapist is a generic term, a non-regulated term that's just used. Anyone can call themselves a therapist. You don't have to have any licensures or credentials. You can say call yourself a therapist. That would be pretty shady, but you could do that. Um, counselor, uh, marriage and family therapist – um, social worker, uh, psychologist, even uh, even doctors, psychiatrists could call themselves therapists, but we, it, we ought not to. Right. We all ought, we ought just call ourselves what the licensure is. Um, so the difference is between like a counselor, and I'm not sure if this is exactly what you're asking, but the difference between a counselor and a psychologist is um, years of training, psychologists have more. They would either have a PsyD or a PhD. PhD is more years and more uh, research oriented. PsyD is fewer years, probably about five uh, post post bachelors, um, and that would be ha- that would have more of a um, a um, applications more D- of a
1: defined direct- Define PsyD for
0: people. Oh that yeah, uh, know. it's a Doctor of Psychology. Okay, all right, and. Um, so that'd be the difference. They cannot prescribe medications, even though they have, they have the doctor title. Um, and they can do testing of various sorts for ADHD, for IQ testing, all those kinds of things. And counselors would have to, st- would have to study those specific testing to get training on them to be able to do them. Uh, psychologists can do them by, by virtue of just holding that licensure um, and through their training in general. So, psychiatrists or
1: MDs or DOs who can prescribe medications. You mentioned earlier right when we started talking that there are there's a lot of help out here. Yeah. I would say it's a pretty collaborative industry. Would you would you is that fair to say?
0: It it is fair to say, but just like anything else I've seen I've seen um I've seen it work both ways. I've seen folks who collaborate I've seen people who feign collaboration and aren't really true about it. And I see people outright um, uh, sort of use people to make money.
1: What do you do to differentiate yourself, keep it fresh? I know you guys have a lot of workshops and continuing education for Mm -hmm. people in the industry and then just awareness for the, the general public. The first and foremost, Trevor, is that we give
0: first. We we look for opportunities to help other people. We help other private practices. We help them launch and grow. We give free consultations to folks. We don't believe in competition whatsoever. We've housed private practices in our own um, in our own building, and we've helped them get on the in same insurance panels we're on. Um, we have a, an internal program at Restoring Hope where we are going to help someone launch their own private practice from. Restoring hope, so th- that kind of gives you a flavor that we do not believe in competition, and we align ourselves with people in that same category that uh, are really truly about collaboration because if we if we all get together like this, we can we can make a major impact. So we're trying to have impact with the one on one person that we see, the families of people in addiction or people with mental health in recovery in that process. Um, but we have to, we want to have community wide um, impact that's, that's why I'm so glad to be here and I so appreciate it because this hopefully is a forum where we can have more of an impact i I'm not satisfied i won't be satisfied until we've until we've convinced everybody that that love and connection and and understanding that we all really have addictions and why do we why do we st- Typecast certain people and say that's worse than another. Let's all get together. Let's own up to what we've got going on here and let's help each other out.
1: And you have a partner Mm -hmm. in your business, Steve Stolreyer. Absolutely. And the moment of meeting you guys and hearing your philosophy, what you just said is spot on. I mean, I would say that you guys are on the higher end of, you know, you're not in it for money, you're not in it for status. You guys are, are truly community leaders and want to get everybody on the same page so i think it's i think it's wonderful and i appreciate everything that you guys do
0: thank you
1: you mentioned the word insurance that is a very controversial subject because insurance is not friendly to mental health and or people with substance use disorder
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and and this is can be a debate I'm, i'm just you know, from my limited experience, it seems as though we're not getting enough love from either whether if it's the government or anything, because and this this feeds the stigma is people aren't able to get the help they need because they can't afford the help that they need.
0: It's you know, it's sad when the one of the first questions in a practical sense when somebody calls for help is or when we're trying to refer amongst each other and depending on level of care and we don't we do outpatient we don't do intensive outpatient or, reha- uh, or residential or anything like that so it 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 kind of it kind of sucks that the first thing we're saying is what insurance do you have in other words yeah. it's 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 insane that insurance has so much power it, to dictate treatment not only the arbitrary length of stay, like a 28 day thing, which is which is based off of my understanding, is based off of got guys from Vietnam only had 28 days that they could they were on leave, so that's all they could use. Really, and so it's been based off of that ever since. I've always And of course, what they that love that is. to keep they want insurance companies pay less. But and you can get the ball rolling in 28 days. But ask anyone out here doing treatment. Even the people that are relegated to doing 28 days would tell you more is better.
1: Yeah. And without a backup plan coming out of 28 days mm-hmm. generally is not enough. I mean, because you got people who want to send their loved one to inpatient, which mm-hmm. is the top tier mm-hmm. of, of care as far as intensity. They're paying 50 grand for 28 days, oh, yeah. you know, 35 to $50,000, which mm-hmm. the vast majority you have to pay up front. And then the treatment center will facilitate insurance, but you'll only get a fraction of that back. Now, I'm not speaking for everybody, but the majority of the time, mm-hmm. and you've got families that are mortgaging their houses, taking out a second mortgage, moving out of their homes. And these are people that have insurance. It's just out of network and you're pigeonholed into mm-hmm. a stigmatized corner mm-hmm. where, you know, we get treated like lepers, you know. And so improvement in if, um, in insurance needs to happen and i don't know if you're seeing an improvement at all year over year
0: no i wouldn't say that i've seen an improvement i've seen where it become it's just so important which insurance you have and 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 because it dictates where you go and how long you can stay there um it is it, it relegates some folks to uh, only go certain places any um and some people with money or better private insurance can go other places. Um, but even then, you're still you're, you're doing the mortgage thing, or if you're lucky, you're paying $5,000 out of pocket and doing an out-of-network thing, which is complicated. And, and some, some rehabs help with that and things like that. But now we're just talking about rehabs primarily, because sure. that's where people are, are, are sinking a, big, a lot of money that's into. That's a big yeah. chunk, yeah. Yeah. And you know, th- their insurance companies are making decisions that aren't based on like the reality of what is really necessary to help people, um, and so that that's really unfortunate.
1: So, on your level of counseling and psychology, how does that play a role? How does that hinder? Do people get a certain amount of visits based on insurance? Typically, how do you see that? Issue play out.
0: Yeah, I mean, an outpatient. It's it, it 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 totally depends on what we take. We take nine different insurances. So if somebody calls and once and has United, for example, one of the reasons we don't take United is because if you haven't heard about that kind of scandal, there they they were outright discriminating against people with mental health issues. They weren't reimbursing properly or or, or something like that um, for those kind of service codes of counseling or psychotherapy. So. With us, it totally you know, it means that people have to pay out of pocket if we don't take their insurance, and they still want to see us. Um, In terms of number of visits, it varies by insurance, so it's complicated. Some people get fifty-two a year, some people get thirty,
1: some people get less. Yeah. So it all depends. Yeah, which thirty and Mm fifty-two sound like a lot, but in reality, in my opinion. It's not close to enough, especially with substance use or addiction and early recovery. And we just talked about this. The only way I'm still on the right side of the street is I went twice a week for a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Didn't miss. And I needed that because mm-hmm. we got to build the coping skills that were that were missing. And in, you know, post acute withdrawal, 18 mm-hmm. months, that's the time where your brain is still rattled and bloody and. Needs to be refocused and reshaped. I just feel that there should be more access to insurance because they get to their thirtieth they get to their thirtieth appointment, and you're thinking, okay, well, let's just keep rolling, hang in there. But they don't have any money, so then they drop off. So it's kind of a obviously more is better, mm-hmm. but you know, and hopefully things hopefully things will continue to improve. But mental health certainly gets the short end of the stick, as opposed, you know, when it comes to support, financial support, because mm-hmm. none of us are any good if, you know, if we're not mentally healthy.
0: Right, and there was supposed to be, I thought, a mental health parity act where every uh, this is several years ago, um, where insurance companies were supposed to provide adequate coverage but i'm still seeing insurance policies that come through that say mental health is not covered at all
1: i read about the parity act this morning okay and it's from what i understand it is still alive Mm -hmm. but i think it's just like anything out of sight out of mind people falling through the cracks organization falling through the cracks and oversight there's nobody So it gets lumped, like a lot of some of these political bills get buried into other things. Mm -hmm. So I think this act got buried into, uh, I forget what it was, but some huge bucket inside the government, and there's nobody to oversee it. So, yeah, it's great that it's out there and there's something that is documented that's supposed to help our cause, but it's it's not robust. So... Um, I hate to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk. We we just talked at lunch about medically assisted treatment. Mm -hmm. Now, this is something that you don't offer. That's correct. But you push people towards and, and link them up with clinics and other things like that. We had a pretty healthy debate about those modalities and their use and their function Tell our guests what the the main vehicles are for medically assisted treatment, okay. and then what what your opinion is on the matter.
0: Hot topic, yeah, hot it topic is a hot indeed. Topic. So, I mean, one of the first things, and I may not get all my medical terminology proper, but but um, you, you have essentially three classes of MATs or medically assisted treatment. First of all, medically, assi- the term is is confusing itself, but um, we'll, we might talk about that later. Um, you got you have methadone, which is an opiate. It's So it would be an opiate replacement kind of thing. That would be where usually it's in a liquid form and people go to various clinics daily until you work up to getting a take-home um, over the weekend and things like that. That's been around for decades. Um, so that's at one MAT. Then you've got Suboxone, Subutex, and all those other ones that are in that same category they have an opioid agonist and an opioid antagonist. Essentially, there's an opioid in it that's the bupe, and there's a an agonist or a blocker. So that's that's that hybrid, that blocker and opioid in there. Um this is this is the most common MAT used in Cincinnati and, and I'm guessing in, in the nation. Okay. Um and has been probably for the past decade. And you're you're seeing just the popularity grow and grow and grow uh, as several area um, suboxone uh, clinics are growing and and adding places and spreading out into north and southeast and west, Um, and then you have Vivitrol, which is manufactured up in um, Wilmington by Alkermes, and this was originated as a blocker for alcohol. So folks with alcoholism, it would be it would help them um, not want to drink, right It would it, it re, re, all these all these things reduce cravings in different fashions. So vivitrol was later determined, I'm not sure when exactly it feels like about 10, fifteen years ago, to be an excellent uh, blocker for the opioid receptors in the brain. so um, that's also widely used. And some Suboxone clinics also have that, Vivitrol. Um, I have opinions forming about the, the, which one is the best at this point, and it's Vivitrol. Um, it's the one that just has the blocker. Now, they all save lives. They, they, they all save lives. And, and, and people, different people need different things at different stages in their recovery, um, in, including methadone. But I want to, let's talk about Suboxone since it's the most popular. Suboxone has, again, the blocker and the opioid in it. I'm not really that opposed to the fact that it has a, a, an opioid in it. But I am, I am opposed to the fact that it has an opioid, what it, having an opioid in it does to people. It's not, it's not just a replacement. I want to be clear about that. Some people are like, well, you, it's, just, it's just drugs. You know, You're just trading one drug for another. Well, yeah, sort of, but you also have the blocker in there. It also keeps people from doing illicit things to get substances. The problem that I see over and over with the people that I work with is most of the time in counseling, which is mandated, by the way, for anybody who's on Suboxone, once-a-month counseling, is that we're spending most of our time talking about the anxiety and getting off of the
1: medication, um Just like the anxiety of getting off of a drug of uh, yes. of percocet yeah. or heroin yeah. and not just the
0: anxiety of that Trevor, but the 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 manner in which it's used so closely approximates the drug use that we i I'd, I'd end up talking with people about is there a way to use this in a different fashion, in other words, it would be used for stress for emotions of unpleasant nature um to help you sleep, to help you give you a boost, whatever it needs to do, it's it's a miracle drug just like the previous drug was. So you're trying to create new healthy habits and it can be an impediment to that. Another major impediment of Suboxone is of a psychological nature. It's, first of all, I need a pill. The pill is helping me, which is true, but it doesn't have to stay true because it can be the pill that can help you lay a foundation so you can do the work of recovery and then take the suboxone away and keep doing the work of recovery but it works so darn well at dealing with cravings that people trick themselves into thinking that they're okay and they don't need to do the work but you do You always do. It always takes work. There is no quick fix to this. Addiction is super complicated. As you know, addiction and addiction recovery is super complicated. It takes a a grind and a roll-up-your-sleeves kind of approach. But not just that. (laughs) It takes more than that. It takes more than willpower and things.
1: Do you think that the invention of methadone way back and what these are now, and this is where I have a problem, is to taper... Is Was that one of the, because people, they are scared to death about withdrawing, you know, and a lot of mm-hmm. people, they avoid sobriety because they're for the sole reason of avoiding those three or four days of hell. Absolutely. But then you start this medicine, it helps you taper off of the drug and ease into some form of more rigid sobriety.
0: I would I would say that yeah that that's the that was the goal. Um, I wasn't there when it went down, but I would mm-hmm. imagine that that's what happened. Um, the goal is to is to make a replacement, quote unquote, for the drug to serve as a bridge sure. to get to the other side of which would be sobriety or recovery. Um, Sometimes it's often not used that way. It just ends up being a stopgap and. and people just stay there because there's no there's no real incentive not to and the and the risk the perceived risks are just too scary to deal with right yeah i think that's what happened
1: yeah i bridge is a beautiful term for it and i think it should be used that way mm-hmm. because there's people that stay on methadone or suboxone forever mm-hmm. in some form or fashion and that's where i think it gets into trading one for the other mhm You know, because people, you do get high to a certain degree. There is an effect of an opiate in there. So what does stigma mean to you? Mm -hmm. Well,
0: stigma is why I'm here. Not only is stigma why I'm sitting here talking with you, stigma and fighting against stigma is, I think, my purpose in life right now. Um, In particular of of addiction uh, and folks with addiction. So yeah, I mean it hits it hits real hard. Um, stigma, I think, is just uh, just discrimination. It's tr- it's treating people as less than because they're going through certain problems, instead of looking at it with empathy and a desire to connect to people. It's just saying, oh, they did that to themselves. Um, they're they're the problem. They're broken. They're dirty. They're this. They're that. So it's really just outright discrimination, which. Which can do nothing short of kill people. It does a bunch of things. It keeps people from seeking treatment, which will have them end up dying. Um, it, may, it, it, it adds a toxic shame to people, which keeps them from even asking for help or even telling people about things. And we know secrets kill. So you get, you get more, more and more isolated and disconnected, which can kill you. If not literally, it can crush your soul
1: and your spirit in your mind. So um, yeah, it's, it's a big deal. You know, people, when they're shunned, if they're an active addiction, they'll, I'm just hitting your point again, could use until they die because they've given up or the crushing the soul part secrets, you know, that's when we're talking about suicide mm-hmm. and suicide. The rates are just staggering. And, and I know I, I know you're going to have uh Folks who are on addiction
0: and who are in recovery coming on this this show, and that that's another thing. The more and more stories we hear, and the more and more people, in particular, I think, who we'd be like, huh? We'd be like surprised to shake up this this um, s- these stereotypes. It can happen to anyone, right? And and no, so it discri- we, doesn't discriminate. It doesn't discriminate
1: in any shape, you know, color, race, creed. Economic Mm -hmm. status, uh, honestly, does not matter.
0: Yeah. I want to say one more thing because I think that we forget about this one. This is to the counselors out there, counselors, psychologists, therapists, anybody who does talk therapy or any kind of help, any helping professional, is we need to do a couple things. Um, First, in grad school, we need to have more than one substance use class. It is, of my 30 credits... Hours, one one, or sixty credit hours. Um, Only two of them had to be, and I don't think that was an elective. So um, it's vastly skewed towards mental health. There is stigma against addiction professionals. Addiction. You talk about that totem pole you mentioned. I I think the perception out there is that addiction professionals are on the the lower end of the totem pole. I want to do everything we can to eradicate the stigma in the profession itself. So siloing mental health and addiction in the first place, I think is stigmatizing. you you going to a mental health professional and telling them you have a substance use problem and them sending you somewhere else, I think feels a little bit um, like, you know, you're either I'm not good enough or something like that to be seen with this issue. Now, maybe it's a competence issue and we're supposed to refer out if we don't have competence in issue. But we should have competence in the issue to begin with. We shouldn't leave. We shouldn't get a license without a, having competence in addiction. Yet we do, as a mental health professional. Sure, it, 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 you should know just you should know how to treat trauma, anxiety, depression, and addiction—the biggies—right before you even get your license. Yet it's not it's not uh, maintained. The, the the fact of that we're not all dual diagnosis clinicians is stigmatizing in and of itself. Um. Yeah, those those are I think those are the big ones. No, but so that's great. like for instance, we at Restoring Hope we are trying to do trainings for about addiction to mental health providers and mental health trainings to addiction providers, so that we can bridge the gap. We're all in the same team. Let's get together. You're talking about chemical dependency counselors. They can't they they can't bill for mental health disorders. They can't treat mental health disorders. Now, how are you going to work with somebody which is 70%, which was conservative, 70 to 90% right. would be the real answer. How are you going to help somebody if you just focus on one issue and you never, aren't even really permitted to diagnose and get underneath the main issue? How is that even possible? Right. So, we need to change some of these things. That that means licensure-wise, in in the schools, um, and in the community. We, it just more and more talks like this need to occur, open forums, uh, of, whether it be dissenting opinions or not. Everybody needs to be heard, but we also need to be, have education out there about what's really going on.
1: So, last thing to an individual out there, a mother, a loved one, of somebody who is desperate to get somebody help or themselves help, but are scared. A small piece of advice. What would you say to them?
0: Again, I would say that the help is out there, and and I know, you know, uh, looking for the ideal entryway is I think what stymies people. There, you don't have to go through the ideal entryway. You don't have to end up calling the place that you would end up going. You can call as many people as you want. Restoring hope, even even though we don't do re, we don't do residential. We can be a conduit. We can help you find. I know people. We can get you. We can go get you to a rehab, or I know, and things like that. Um, and I can talk you through it and consult with you and do some family family uh, education and therapy on things. You can really call anybody who's licensed, you know, especially a licensed independent chemical dependency counselor or something like that, who who really understands addiction. You can go to PsychologyToday.com and look for private practitioners. You can go to um, the Addiction Services Council has a pretty comprehensive uh, list of places. Really, any place
1: yeah.
0: The, the point is entry point. The
1: point is to reach out, It's to, right? The point is to reach out, absolutely yeah. reach out. And I love your point about you don't have to... Some people are so pigeonholed, they pigeonhole themselves on, okay, this is where I think I need to go, I'm going to call, and if I can't get in, I'm just not going to do it. You, you, call, you do whatever you need to do, and I think... In this sense, it is very collaborative because people, if they're worth their salt, are going to send you somewhere. Right. They're going to help you, give you a phone number, right. a name, whatever it is, because you just need to get started. You got to get that ray of hope mm-hmm. that, okay, yeah, it is out here for me
0: you got the, the 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 problem with that in in, in people's defense here is that th- remember the three categories of people i mentioned before Co- people who are willing to collaborate people who fake collaborate and people who are in it for money and competition there if you if you call some rehabs they will qualify you as somebody who's not really in need of such service so you do have to be careful of um of that kind of practice, where where people will make you fit into their program, so it's best to start small, like really non non invasive uh, sort of level of care. Maybe get maybe get an assessment, and maybe this is me but being biased too. But it's the low we're, we're at the we're at the bottom here, the lowest entry. We can do an assessment if we think you need IOP or something higher. We will tell you and we'll come see you when you're done. We, we're specialists in relapse prevention and aftercare. Um, so at the same time, people don't want to do five different assessments different places because you need an assessment for each place. But the point is get an idea. Do, your, do some legwork. Do some background check. You don't have to be the diagnostician, but understand the differences between outpatient, intensive outpatient, day treatment, and residential because the person, your son, your daughter may not necessarily need the highest level of care. If they if they smoked uh, a joint five times in their life, they may you might not need to hit them over the head with rehab. Right, they might need something else. And and on the it goes the other way too. Some people, you know, they're hiding so much, but they're that they're really actually doing. They need more. Leave the diagnosing to the professionals, but really you can call any reputable place. And if you need help finding what reputable places are, call me and I'll send you to the reputable ones.
1: Awesome. Well, I appreciate you being here, man. Appreciate yeah. your friendship and everything that you do. And right uh, you. I wish you luck going forward.
0: Thank you, Trevor. Appreciate it.
1: Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound. Artwork by Neltner Smallbatch. And photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.